What goes through your head when you're going down the shops or you're in Brisbane and you see someone either on a corner or out something handing out pamphlets or brochures? Now, I don't know about you, but my first thought is, I don't want it, I don't need it, and if I can avoid eye contact, then I work on the theory that I'm going to get past there without being heckled by it. That, as you know, particularly when you go into to Brisbane, they're, they, they're quite proactive. They, that technique doesn't work so well um, down in Brisbane. Because I usually think it, it's not any good for me, so why take it? I think it was in the first video from the Christianity Explored Evangelism Program... As a bit of a trial example, what they did is they stood outside a train station in the UK with flyers that said, if you bring this back, we will give you £10. Just to sort of see how people would respond. I've already sort of thought about how we think when someone's handing out brochures. Now, the majority of people who took those brochures did what you and I did. They presumed they didn't want it, presumed what it had on had nothing to do with them, and the majority of them ended up in the next bin after where the person was standing handing them out. Then on the other hand, there were some who saw the offer, presumed there must have been a catch, people don't just give away money for nothing, thought it was going to be too much effort, so they chucked it out. Out of about what I think was a couple of hundred, three or four people actually came back with the piece of paper and surprise, surprise, they got £10. Now, I think that's a really good illustration for today's sermon. When we're talking about faith alone, in that we have already looked through, as we've gone through the series, we've seen how Christ alone by his work alone has done everything to be sufficient to secure our salvation that that offer is available to us by grace and faith is merely the hands that takes hold of what God has already provided. Today is the last in our series of these five solas as we've sort of focused on these things as we come up to on Tuesday, the the 500-year anniversary of that day when Martin Luther posted these 95 theses of things where he put to to the church. These are things we need to talk about. And he wrote them in Latin because in the religious circles, Christian circles of the day, Latin was the thing. So he wrote it and he posted there as a way of saying, these are the things in which the church has gone astray. We need to sit down and have a good chat about these things. Now, because it was in Latin, the everyday person who saw it didn't have a clue what it was about. But there were some other fellow students who saw it, loved it, Realise the people need to see this, translate into German, the printing press is up and rolling, they publish it, distribute it in all the villages, and what was initially Martin Luther's idea of just raising some issues to discuss, we need to talk about these, was something that everyone throughout Germany was all of a sudden discussing. And it was because of this high focus upon the Latin language, hence why as we've gone through these series, they've all had their Latin names. You don't need to remember Sola Fide if you want to sound like you're intellectual, feel free to use it, but um, I think it's a bit of a waste of time other than the fact that's what some people know it as. And we've through the series, we've looked at all of these things as being sufficient. That scripture alone is a sufficient source 
and authority for all teaching and understanding, that we do not need to add the traditions of the church, the teaching of the Pope, in addition to those things. That all things are be done for God's glory alone, because he is the one who works and wills all good things. The glory belongs to him, not to the church and not to its workers. That salvation comes by grace alone. Not a single one of us can merit it. God doesn't make his salvation available because he goes, ah, look at Steve, what a top bloke, I could really use him. Matter of fact, if he was to provide a description of what Steve was like, that's far, far from the words he'd use. Our salvation is rests upon the work of Christ alone. What Jesus did on the cross was totally sufficient. He dealt with our sins once for all, the scriptures say. You do not need to add religious activities as a requirement to be saved. Christ's work is sufficient. And every single one of these things, it needs to be said, the Roman church never disagreed with any of these five points as being important points. The emphasis was upon alone. They agreed with grace. They agreed with the scriptures. They agreed with with the work of Christ. They agreed with faith. But they had added to them. And as we've seen, as we've gone through the series, when you place things in addition, you're saying that what has already been provided is insufficient. So rather than making something greater, it's actually taking away and declaring what God has done to be not enough. Today, as we're looking at faith alone, we see that Jesus Christ, all of who he is, all of his benefits are ours through faith. Now, this is probably the one that when people get really passionate talking about things about uh, what we believe and what the Roman Catholic Church believes, this is the one where people in their passion tend to say things that aren't true at all. Where people turn and say, we're saved by faith alone, you say you're saved by works. The Roman church has never, never once taught that we are saved by works. Again, like all of the others that we've been looking through in this series, they accepted the idea of faith being the point of entry into into relationship with God. But the issue was, again, faith plus. Faith plus do this. And where you add, you take away sort of outline of where we're headed this morning. The majority of time we're going to spend in that first point, that our justification and righteousness comes through faith alone, and we'll define some of those terms. What is the nature of this faith? Like if faith is the way in which we receive Christ and all of his benefits and all of who he is, then we want to know what is faith, because people use that word in all sorts of different ways. Sanctification, that is our ongoing spiritual growth, comes through faith alone. And then as we wrap it up, Like, is it kind of a neither here nor there sort of splitting hairs issue? Or is this something that's actually a dead set, deep anchor for our soul? Is there encouragement in this truth? So starting with justification through faith alone. Now, faith alone has probably been the most prominent thing that the reformers focused their attentions upon. Luther said it's the cornerstone upon which the entire gospel is built. Calvin says it's the hinge upon which everything turns, justification by faith alone. But as we start to talk about things like justification, sanctification, righteousness, they're churchy words we use all the time and they're Bible words, 
But sometimes it helps to actually stop and say, what do these words mean? Rather than just being words that we use over and over again. When we're talking about justification, this definition comes from Mallard Erickson's Concise Dictionary of Christian Theology. In the doctrine of salvation, it is the declaration that the human has been restored to a state of righteousness in God's sight. Or put in simple terms, it is a legal declaration from God that you are right in his sight. And therefore, as a result, it would be unjust and entirely unwarranted for any punishment to be meted out towards you because you have been declared right in his sight as your guilt and your sin has been fully dealt with in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We've already seen that salvation came by the work of Christ alone. And because it comes by the work of Christ alone and all of us are guilty, the Bible says that we are hostile towards God. By nature we live as enemies towards God. It is by grace alone. So the question that faith alone looks about is, how do the benefits of Jesus' work on the cross become received by his people? How are they appropriated to his people? From our reading that we had before, from Romans 3, explains it this way. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bore witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So God's righteousness received through faith for all who believe. For there's no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So God's righteousness is received by faith for all who believe. It says this is what the Old Testament bore witness to. This isn't a new idea that Paul's introducing at this point in time. We saw later on as we got into chapter 4 that even Abraham, he wasn't made right, declared right in God's sight because he did certain things. He was counted to him as righteous because he believed, he trusted in God and his, what God had provided for him. How do we receive that gracious gift that justifies us, declares us right in his sight? By faith. So the mechanics of how that works is God does the work. All we do is someone desperately realising we are in need as God has graciously shown us our need of him as a saviour and what he has done by taking hold of that. Remember when Samuel did grace alone? He reminded us of that picture from Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you are dead in your sins. Now, by our own natural state, we're not even capable of seeing the good news of the gospel. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not even see the kingdom of God. The description of mankind and our nature before God in Romans chapter 3, back in verse 11 says, no one seeks after God. We can't naturally do it unless God does a work to show us our need for a saviour like every other discussion that we have with friends who, who seem to see nothing by nature of the good news of the gospel. It's because unless God does work, it just seems like foolishness. Because we can't naturally seek after God, faith too is a gift given by God 
so that in all things the glory would go to God. But partly it seems a bit obvious, doesn't it? Faith alone, why would this become a big issue? Why why would this even need to be said? You know how sometimes when you come across a rule or a law somewhere and you think, what a stupid law. What my mind does thinks, what idiot has done something so stupid that this law needs to exist? Because there's always a reason for them. In the town where we used to live when I worked at a Christian youth camp, in that shire there was rules about the times in which you could use a vacuum cleaner. I'm guessing it must have been like in an apartment sort of scenario and the noise that they made, but there, there was a rule that uh, between these certain hours you could not use your vacuum cleaner. It, was, it wasn't, I think it was maybe 8 o'clock till maybe 7 at night, I think might have been the rules. I break those rules. I confess that here and now. Not that I had a house anywhere near me where we were. One of my favourites is down on the Great Ocean Road, down in Victoria. It's about two-hour drive from the Melbourne airport, but when you get on the Great Ocean Road, there's these signs in the little places where you pull in maybe to stop and take photos. We drive on the left-hand side in Australia. Now, my thought is, if you've come from another country and you've got two hours away from the airport and you've done... Let them go, they've got a skill for it. (laughs) So what was the reason? What was going on that made this need to be a key issue? Still in the Roman Catholic Church today, you would have heard this expression, mortal sin. It was a description of sins that were considered to be so heinous that somehow they would kill the effects of God's gracious work in the life of someone. That somehow that would make someone who is justified, unjustified. That somehow we would need to do certain things to become re-justified, re-declared right in God's sight. The term which is used for that is they call penance. Where there's remorse, where there's confession, as well as particular works of satisfaction, particular things that you might do to satisfactorily appeal to God that he might think it's worth reinstating you to a position to which I say you are right in my sight. In previous weeks, we talk about some of those things that had been provided. The big key one at that time was the idea of the selling of indulgences, the idea that of the saints that have gone beforehand, there was a certain level of good things you needed to do, certain merits. And those who had over and above what was needed to get in, there was like an invisible bank account, these treasury of merits, and by buying a certificate, you could somehow get some of those put into your bank account um, so that you'd topped them up so that you were good enough um, to get into, get into heaven. Or there was these idea of pilgrimages, going to special places, doing certain things, by doing these, that they might lift you up the, the ladder and somehow get you to be declared right in God's work by your achievements in addition to your faith. That's why it became a key thing. Because the idea of being right in God's sight, being once for all, and being received by faith had been let go of. It becomes something that was dependent upon faith plus something you did. And because it also included something you did, means that something you did could take it away. But as we look to the scriptures, human achievements can never contribute anything to us being made right in God's sight. In the verse just before our reading this morning, from verse 20, 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's pretty comprehensive. By doing stuff, no person will be declared right in his sight. Expresses a similar idea to the Galatians in chapter 2. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul was pretty straightforward, pretty clear. What you do, worth nothing. Faith in Christ, everything. The Galatian church was the prime example of what it would look like in terms of a church that existed in the Bible to claim faith and then say, but you need to do this as well in order to be declared right in God's sight. Remember a few weeks back when we looked at Galatians chapter 5, the issue in their church wasn't um, indulgences and all those sorts of things, but they said, yes, faith in Christ, but you must also be circumcised in order to be right in God's sight. And Paul, in responding to them in chapter 5, says, Look, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. To a people who, who had a, a concept of faith, he says, If you even had just this little thing of circumcision, Christ's work is worth nothing. If you want to start adding to it, nothing. It's all or nothing. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. It's either all Christ through faith, or if you want to go the the route of, of your works, your achievements, then you've got to put yourself under the standard of achieving every single one of them. And guess what? No one can. They were trying to, to make it God honoring. But Paul says, you add to it, the work of Christ is worth nothing to you. Now, in the 16th century, it wasn't about being circumcised. There were certain other things that were adding as works in addition to our faith. But I think Paul's words, as he introduces his letter to the Galatians, gives us an emphasis and a reason to see why the reformers thought this was so important. Because we already know the Galatian church was a church that had received an understanding of faith plus something else. And as Paul begins to set out that letter to them, he says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so I say to you again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have already received, let him be accursed. Now these are pretty harsh words. He says, if an apostle tells you something, if Peter tells you something, if an angel from God gives you a gospel... It's different than what you've already received. He says, let them be damned. These are serious terms. So what was this different gospel that was happening in Galatia? It was a gospel that said, faith in Christ plus these works. And Paul said to that church, if someone brings you a gospel like them, let them be accursed. 
It's not a minor matter, hence why they fought for it. Luther and his, and his contemporaries were in a time when, the, when it was taught the benefits of Christ, his death, resurrection, ascension were only available to you through faith plus through other certain religious acts and means. But as we saw in Galatians 5.2, you want to add to the, the work of Christ received by faith to be declared right in his sight? He says, you do that, work of Christ is worth nothing to you. Why would we add to it? Isaiah 64, 6 says, Our works of righteousness are filthy rags. They are then, they still are. The work of Christ alone, received by faith alone, gives you everything you need. By faith we receive all the benefits of Christ's death, resurrection, ascension. We are justified that he legally declares us right in his sight and that helps to know that the one who's going to judge you says, you're good, you're dealt with. We are given the righteousness of Christ through faith. That's why we never need to be re-justified because what we've received is not dependent upon our righteousness, our works. We depend upon Christ's righteousness, his works, his perfections. All of this comes and is received through faith. But as I said in the introduction, people use this word faith in so many different ways. I couldn't count the number of conversations I've been in with people where people say, you know, I don't do this anymore, I don't read the Bible, I don't pray, but I've still got a faith. What sort of faith do you think you've got? A faith that's got no interest but something in the back of my mind thinks that I'm right with God? I suppose one of the dangers of the expression faith alone is that it can sound like a a one-item to-do list. Something once off, you check it off, it's done, I'm set for life, all sweet. And often people whose mindsets think this way, when they say faith alone, they're referring to one particular thing that they did at some point. Oh, I got baptised on this date. Oh, I grew up going to Sunday school all my life. Even got, even got a little sticker at the end of the year to say I'd done all my memory verses. Went to youth group. Even helped out with the youth group. I said the sinner's prayer at some point. All of these things are good. You want to know what? An atheist could do every single one of them. Not one of them by themselves make you right in God's sight. Not one of them is the means by which we receive all of the benefits of Christ and his death and resurrection. Faith alone doesn't mean doing something. Another view which people would say when they're talking about faith alone is, I believe that Jesus died, I believe he rose again. Remember the words of James where it says, you believe there's one God? Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. Do you think demons are considered right in the sight of God by by believing certain truths? You could even have a passion for Christian doctrine and making sure it's right Christian doctrine and have no genuine faith in Christ and his work for your salvation. 
Because faith isn't just a general term. Faith is always in something. It's not in something, an act that we've done. Our faith is not even in the beliefs that we hold. Our faith is in Christ. That we are his creation, that we have rebelled against him, we are deserving of death. He loved us and has come and died that death on our behalf to be a substitute on behalf of sinful man. And the way in which we receive the benefits of his death on our behalf is through trusting him. Faith in him, our saviour and our Lord. This faith isn't just something we did on a day. It wasn't just for me January 9th, 1996. That was my one day of faith. It's an ongoing thing because my faith is in Christ who is saviour and Lord. He is my master. It changes a complete difference about my priorities. It changes my loyalties, changes my worldviews, changes my affections. It changes, therefore, my actions. I'm no longer living for self. I've been bought at a price, therefore I will glorify him with my body. There is ongoing implications of faith. Sometimes the emphasis of faith alone, people want to say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. As long as I've got faith, I don't need to do anything. But as Samuel pointed out, as we went through Romans, sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, usually where people use 8 and 9 as the way of saying, no, it doesn't matter what we do. When we say, for grace we've been saved through faith, this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no man may boast. And that's where often people will finish. But it says, for we are his workmanship. So this work that God has done in bringing us to salvation, created in Christ Jesus, is for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he has saved us with the intention that we would be changed in the way in which we live. James says a very similar thing. He says, you say you've got faith? Show me your faith. If you say you've got faith and your life is not dramatically changed, you don't have works, he says, that sign of faith is dead. It's not faith. You can call it what you like, but it's not faith of the Bible. Well, the way the Reformers put it, we are justified, that is declared right, by faith alone. But the faith which justified never stands alone. Meaning that we're justified by faith alone, but if that is genuine faith, that is transformational faith, it will never stand alone because it will be accompanied by the works of faith. So if our actions are to reflect this change, how does it happen? How often we use that term sanctification in terms of our growth in, in spiritual maturity in Christ-likeness. Now we've already seen at the moment we believe by faith we receive Christ, his righteousness and all of his benefits. That sometimes gets referred to as the imputed or the credited righteousness, like it being put into our bank account. This is yours. The righteousness of Christ credited to you. That is the reason why we can stand before God on that day in confidence, because it is his righteousness credited into our account. But there's another way in which righteousness is spoken of, is in imparted, as in we are declared right, we have been given the righteousness of Christ. But imparted meaning that we actually start to grow in our sanctification. We become more and more like Christ. That righteous actions begin to grow within our life. 
Now that imputed righteousness, being given the righteousness of Christ, how does that come? By faith in Christ's work and Christ's work alone. But what's faith's role in that second one? That growth in actual, tangible, practical righteousness. Well, the way Paul speaks about our salvation and ongoing life in Colossians 2, he says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received him, when you realized that you had nothing, you depended completely upon him, so the rest of your Christian life continue to live in that way, depending upon him. He is your source. He is your sufficiency in all things. Yes, we're a new creation, but just like Romans 8 says, the flesh cannot and will not do anything pleasing to God. Remember when Paul said to the Galatians, he says, having now begun by the Spirit, are you now going to get perfected by the flesh? We are dependent upon God for our salvation. We are dependent upon God and in faith in God for our ongoing sanctification. You want to know what the biggest hindrance to my spiritual growth is? Me. Biggest hindrance to my spiritual growth by me not trusting, by me not growing in the things that bring honour to Christ is not that I am under-resourced. Is not that God hasn't provided abundantly for me. It's that I haven't trusted what God has provided. And I do that regularly. I think it's very similar to the reason why people when they're hungry go to McDonald's. Not because they think it's good, but because it's familiar. They know what they're getting. We know what to expect when we go our own way. We struggle with the fact that someone else has provided. We struggle to believe that he can do what he's provided. Yet we seem entirely comfortable to think that he can defeat the effects of sin, Satan and death in our life without a problem. Just as I believe he can do that entirely, he can do what he's called us to do to walk and live in this life. Now this isn't a call to say, oh look, we're all failures, we haven't done it. Look at Paul. Paul is someone we often look up to and think, I'd love to be like him. He says, the things I want to do, I don't do it. Now that struggle between what the flesh wants and what the spirit wants happens within every single one of us. It pulls us a particular direction. But I find encouragement in the words of Paul to the Philippian church. Therefore, my beloved, as you have been always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Have you seen that verse before? God works in you to will, in other words, to create the desire and to work to actually carry it out for his good pleasure. God is for you. He's wanting to do these things in our lives. So it's both our salvation is by faith in God alone who wills and works within us. But is this whole faith alone thing just splitting hairs? Potato, potato, does it really matter? Was it all just a big fuss about nothing and they should have just kept quiet and just gone under the radar? When we looked at Galatians, we saw that it was majorly important. 
When Paul began that letter, he says, if someone brings you a gospel that's, that's Jesus Christ and something else, let him be accursed. Now, we don't just want to come to the end of this and think, okay, I agree with these certain things. We've already talked about just having right theology is worth nothing in and of itself. Even an atheist can come and agree with those facts. What I want us to see is what God has done for us. I want us to be touched by the fact that God has provided abundantly in everything we need. And that our confidence, therefore, is in him and is not in us. That knowing that the moment in which we trust him, in faith, Jesus Christ, all of who he is, all the benefits of his death, resurrection and ascension are yours at that moment. You are justified, declared right in his sight, declared right by the one who will judge every single person, given his spirit as a seal and a guarantee of our salvation. And then the thought that started it all for Martin Luther in Romans 1.17. So after he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for all, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. Then verse 17, this was the verse that changed Luther's mind entirely and sent him on this quest. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now remember, in the, at the time, the 16th century, Latin was the language that all the major theological Christian teaching stuff was happening, including that with the Bibles that they would have in front of them. And the way in which that verse is phrased in the Latin, in that particular verse speaks about a righteousness that you are made righteous. And the teaching of the church at the time was, you can make yourself righteous by doing certain things. But part of this, what Luther was there to do is he was going back to the original writings, he was looking back at the original Greek, and he was struck when he saw what this terminology was speaking of, and it was speaking about a righteousness that was someone else passively given to a sinful human being. Now Luther was someone who was always, have you ever seen anything, he was sort of a bit of a freak. He was always wondering, would God accept me? Had he done enough? There was a time in his history where, where he was given the opportunity to, to go to a pilgrimage. There's these steps in a particular church, in the Lateran church where the, the theory was that Jesus had been on those steps and it was taught that if you crawled up those steps that you could work your way into a right standing with God. And so Luther was excited to have that opportunity because he was panicked always that he hadn't done enough. And he crawled up those stairs and when he got to the top, he just cried out, how does this work? Because he realised, how stupid is this? Crawling up some stairs just because apparently Jesus had been on them, that somehow that would make me right with God. But beginning with Romans 1.17, he saw a righteousness that's not his own, that is the righteousness of God, it's given to him through faith. And that was a game changer. For someone who is so panicked about, will I be right, will I be able to stand before God, I know I haven't done enough, I know my failings, he now knows by faith, Christ's righteousness is credited to him. That his standing before God is not dependent upon his righteousness, 
but upon the righteousness of Christ. And you want to know why that's a joy to us today? Because if I right standing with God depended upon my righteousness, then I would forever be in fear that what if I did something wrong that could take that away? Now, one of the things I love about Hebrews chapter 11, the famous faith chapter, go read through that list sometime. Every single one of them, tragic failures in one way or another. You've got David, the adulterous murderer. Rahab, a prostitute. Yet it describes these people as people of faith. People who are counted right in the sight of God. If that depended on their own righteousness, there would be no chance to stand before him. But their confidence was a righteousness that was not their own. This idea not being an idea that just starts to come out in the New Testament. We saw in the reading there from Romans chapter 4. It says, Abraham was counted as righteous because he believed God. Because he trusted God and he trusted God's provision. Not because he got circumcised, not because he did this but because he believed God and that was credited to him as righteousness. I love this truth. That when we come to faith, Jesus Christ himself, all of his benefits, all of who he is, is yours. Everything he is, everything he's promised, we are considered co-heirs with Christ and on that final day we will stand before God not with knees knocking about all the things that we haven't done right but with confidence that rests upon the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to us not only has he dealt with us and given us certainty for our future but as we saw in Philippians 2.13 that God is on your side God wills and works what is pleasing to, to, for his good pleasure. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a uh, disastrous thing it would be and what a, an anxious thing it would be if our achievements or our personal righteousness would be the means by which we were um, counted right in your sight. I probably couldn't even pick a single day. Actually, I know I couldn't pick a single day in my life that I'd say, I'll take that one. That one will be good enough. But Lord, we thank you that not only have you dealt with the nature of sin with Jesus Christ on the cross, not only have you forgiven and justly punished our sin and poured that out on Jesus. But his very righteousness has been credited to us. We don't need to stress upon relying upon our own perfection, which we'll never have, but upon his perfection on our behalf. Lord, we know we struggle. We deal very deeply with the struggle, maybe even this very week. We may have done things that we can't believe that we've done. But Lord, you promise that you um, are working and willing that which is pleasing in your sight. 
Help us to trust your sufficiencies in those moments, even when everything within our flesh says, go this way, it's familiar. You've done it before, another time won't matter. Help us to cling to you in those moments as much as we cling to you for our very salvation when we first saw our need for you. We ask in Jesus Christ. Amen.